Okay, guess where we're going? Ephesians 6. Uh, Let's talk about Paul for another minute here. You know, unbeknownst to him, and probably kind of hard for him to accept, was that God had been preparing him for reaching not the nation of Israel, but for those outside the nation of Israel was the message of the gospel. I find it intriguing. He, he got it that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. But I wonder if he kind of came at that kicking and screaming to begin with. Seems like he kind of did. Um, Paul considered himself, he would call himself an abnormal apostle. Um, since he wasn't among the original 12 that you read about in the gospels. And he never evidently, as far as we know, met Jesus before the cross. Um, He wasn't privy to any of Jesus' sermons um, during Jesus' earthly ministry. But post-resurrection, wow, did he meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. And uh, and then went through a period of uh, kind of discipleship and and, uh, church attendance for eight years or so. And uh, he grew, Barnabas introduces him to the church, and then, wow, what happened? Anthony, you got somebody with you today? (laughs) I I saw your buddy there, and I thought, we better get this guy introduced. My son, Jaden. Jaden, great to see you, pal. Man, it's good to have you here. I think he looks a little bit like his dad, Anthony. Like a mirror. My goodness. Great to have you here, partner. Did he buy you a donut or anything? <laughs> yeah, got you in trouble, didn't I, Dad? Okay, sorry. There you go. So, we've been talking about a spiritual battle. That's what this chapter, at least these verses from about 10 to about 18, are about. And we're talking about the metaphor of a Roman soldier in the passage that we've been studying. We'll close this study next week, kind of do a wrap-up thing on prayer next week. But um, you've got to remember, as we study this, that you and I are in a spiritual battle. Now, for uh, these weeks, I've been excerpting a little bit out of um, C.S. Lewis' kind of watershed book on demonic work called the screw tape letters. And if you remember, uh, it is screw tape is an uncle writing to a nephew, Wormwood, about how to undo a Christian. All right. And uh, he, they've got a patient that they're involved with uh, trying to uh, infect. And so he, uh, listen to the tongue in cheek here. It's really good. I sometimes wonder if you young fiends are not kept out on temptation duty too long at a time. If you're not in some danger of becoming infected by the sentiments and the values of the humans among whom whom you work, they, of course, do tend to regard death as the prime evil and survival as the greatest good. But that's because we've taught them to do so. Do not let us be infected by our own propaganda. I know it seems strange that your chief aim at the moment should be the very same thing for which the patient's lover and his mother are praying, namely his bodily safety, but so it is. You should be guarding him like the apple of your eye. If he dies now, you lose him. 
If he survives the war, there's always hope. The enemy has guarded him from youth through the first great wave of temptations, but only if he can be kept alive. You have, have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity or excellent campaigning weather. You see, it's so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt this pain of ever overcoming the chronic temptations which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives and the, and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it, all this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing an agreeable work build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. You'll notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. I'll let that apply to you however it needs to. But don't you smell sulfur? In those words, you know, the pit of hell, don't you smell that there? So we've been taught by Paul here how to fight the devil, and that's what we're kind of up against today. So our key verse has been Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to, be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. Today, we're going to talk about God's spirit that gives us confidence to stand strong as he teaches us how to hold on and use his word. Now, what role does the Bible play in your life? Is it a daily foray into it? A daily thing that you do? Maybe it's weekly, maybe it's monthly, maybe it's when you're at church. But certainly, I hope the Bible has some relationship in your life we're going to advocate today maybe stepping that up a little bit. Now, Steve Blair, I bet you've been practicing, I know you've been practicing for now seven weeks on reading Ephesians 6. I've been looking all morning. I can't find it. You can't find it in your Bible. <laughs> sword drill. He is lost in sword drill. Uh, okay, we're going to have you read through verse 17. And by the way, you might practice verse 18 for next week. Okay. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God gives us protection through the Holy Spirit. Catch the interplay here. He inspires the Word of God. The Holy Spirit does. And when you and I read it, he gives us illumination on what we're reading to understand it. We'll kind of apply that here in a little bit. The great uh, British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the best book I have in my library on preaching and preachers was written by him. Uh, he says we need, we need both the Holy Spirit and the Bible. If we try to understand the Bible apart from the Holy Spirit, we end up with kind of a dry faith, a dead faith, or maybe even no faith at all. However, if we depend on the Holy Spirit without the foundation of the Bible, we might end up with a deeply subjective faith uh, that kind of follows the mood of the moment. So, Lloyd-Jones says, we need the Word of God and the Spirit of God working together in our lives. That's why Paul says what he does about this piece of armor the way he says it. He says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Here's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's nothing more important in this faith against the devil and all these powers than we should be clear as to God's word and its authority and its meaning. So throughout all this metaphor that we've been using, Paul seems to be uh, looking at the words of uh, the prophet Isaiah. Here, we think he may be hinting at Isaiah 49 too. So you might put that one kind of in, in the... Uh, the, the margin of your, uh, of your um, uh, note sheet today. Um, here's what Isaiah 49, verse 2, first part of it says. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. So he's talking about the servant of the Lord. It's kind of the suffering servant idea in these chapters in the book of Isaiah. The sword here is used as a figure of speech for the words that God gives his servant to speak. Now, Paul is going to talk about this, uh, this piece of armor, if you will, being used offensively. But you and I know that words can also be a weapon. Words are powerful. The most powerful words of all are the words that God gives us in his word. And I would add to that, the most powerful words of the most powerful words are those that are in red in your Bible. Amen. You know, talk about a sword to be used, but they're to be used to fight the devil. You ready for this? Not each other. We're going to kind of get into that a little bit. Can you imagine um, the, um, uh, the work of Martin Luther King Jr. or Winston Churchill uh, without the words they employed to convey courage and a message and hope and vision? Well, we've got that here. So the term for the Roman sword is the word, if I'm pronouncing it right, Gladius. Now, by the way, this bad boy is really heavy. Uh, Pastor Bill brought this in for me to use today. I'm sure he, uh, I did not have a carry permit for this. So, look at this guy. He's 
see that? And it, it's heavy. Um, the idea here is um, uh, the most common style of sword was called the Pompeii Gladius, which was named after all the swords that they found in the ruins of Pompeii uh, after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. The common sword of the Roman soldier was 16 to 22 inches long. I'll put this back over here because it weighs a ton. Um, 16 to 22 inches long. It um, was sharpened on both sides. I didn't check to see if that one was very sharp, okay? I didn't want to cause a, uh, I didn't want to have to call 911. Um, sharpened on both sides, leading to a triangular point. It was the perfect weapon for close hand combat. Um, and they would thrust it behind a shield or between shields of the enemy. And uh, it could penetrate chain mail. It could penetrate leather body armor. And uh, interestingly, the Roman soldier didn't have to unsheath his sword very often, except in battle. Just wearing it struck fear. You want to do something with that as we think about this sword? Just wearing the sword struck fear into the enemy. I'm told um, that except for higher-ranked soldiers, a typical infantryman wore the sword on his right side if you were higher in rank, you wore the sword on your left side. Uh, and so I'm not sure why they did that other than the position of the sword indicated rank and uh, position and the importance of the soldier. It's hard not to see the importance of this battle armor, this piece of offensive weaponry to our fight against the devil. Now, let me hand out some verses for us to read here in a little bit. Would somebody go to 2 Peter 1 and read verse 20 and 21? We'll get that one in a minute. John, you get that one? Um, let's do Ezra 7.10. Good luck finding that one, Steve Blair. You know, Ezra 7.10. Somebody get that one? Thank you, Sherman. Okay, um, and then uh, we'll want to get 2 Timothy 3.16. Rhonda, you get that one? All right, then I need somebody to read a good little paragraph from the 119th Psalm, right in the middle of your Bible. 119th Psalm, we'll read 10 through 16. He'll get, Dan, great. And then uh, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Got a few of them today. Mark, thank you. Ezra 7, 10. Oh, you know what? We got it in there twice. Thank you. Sorry about that, pal. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I have it down here twice for some reason. And then Hebrews 4.12. One more. Ellie, you go to Hebrews 4.12 in a minute? Okay. It, it'll, be there. It, it'll be there a while before we get to that one. I'll give you time to look. All right. So, the evil one, your enemy, the one that C.S. Lewis writes about in screw tape letters, the enemy wants to separate you from the word of God. As a child of God, he knows that you and the Holy Spirit together with this offensive weapon are really hard to defeat. And so he's going to ask you to get a firm grip on the scriptures. Listen to what Martin Luther wrote uh, in his... Uh... By the way, you know that Martin Luther was not only a... Uh, 
not only a, a great theologian, he was a hymn writer, kind of close to my heart, right? And so what became one of his uh, kind of common hymns that became kind of the, the um, battle song or the, or the um, anthem for the Great Reformation is a song that we don't sing a whole lot around here, but we do occasionally called The Mighty Fortress is Our God. Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott. That's the only German I know. Besides, danke schön. Okay. Uh, here's what it says in the third stanza. And though this world with devils filled, have we been talking about that? The devil's all around you, his minions are all around you. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Boy, isn't that strong? That's from the 1500s, okay? Now, the word of God deals a devastating blow. It becomes an offensive weapon when handled in full submission to God against the devil's schemes. So how do we handle the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? There are four thoughts about this regarding the word from the spirit. Um, first of all, we want to talk about the fact that the word of God, this book, this word is a gift from God. All right? It's a gift from God. And I want to, want to take us to two passages from the New Testament where, um, where um, the, the New Testament writers tell us this, both from Peter and from Paul. Uh, um, John, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Is that the one you got? Yes. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You need to hang on to that if someone ever encounters you and say, well, it's just a, it's just a book written by men. What does, what does Peter say here? Uh-uh. The men wrote in their style with even their personality, but Peter says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not one author um, of a book or letter in the Bible wrote alone through his own insight and skill. It all came from the Holy Spirit, moved by him. Paul is going to use a, a, a hyphenated term in the English language to describe this process. Who, who got 2 Timothy 3.16? Thanks, Ron. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. All scripture is, and here's that expression, God breathed. He breathed it out. It, it got kind of sent through a writer's own personality and writing style, and it got to you and me. If the Holy Spirit inspired its writing, can he also inspire its translation? And it's, um, it's being given to me. Interesting here. We can't simply dismiss or ignore the parts of the Bible we don't like. Have you ever heard anybody do that? you ever done that yourself? Well, I like this part, but I don't like this part. By the way, you're in good company. Uh, Thomas Jefferson felt the same way about the Bible. If you're aware of it, he kind of 
edited his own version of the Bible. Do you know this? Yes, I do. It, he literally took, took scissors to the parts of the Bible that he either just didn't like, didn't understand, or thought, thought were not appropriate. Isn't that interesting? We have, I've never done that. I, I, I promise in my study, you'll not find a Bible that has scissors and things cut out or even X's through parts that I don't like. But don't we occasionally do this kind of <clears throat> symbolically? Oh, I really like that. Oh, I don't like that. And yet, the Bible says, all Scripture says of itself, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, just think of all the books in human history. Have any of them had the effect on humanity and on you that this book has? None. Can any book beside the Bible move a sinner to repent and change? It is the book of books, someone said. Um, Shakespeare wrote beautiful prose. Tolstoy wrote moving stories. Even George Lucas wrote fascinating narratives. But nobody can claim credit for sparking missionary movements, the planting of churches and schools and hospitals in underserved and blighted parts of the world. The Spirit of God did that through His Word, the Word of God. Most of the great things that have happened in human history has happened as a result of the Word of God used by the Spirit of God to motivate someone to act. Okay, now, there are some odd parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand, right? Can we just admit that? We don't want to cut them out, but we probably have a little more trouble with some little troublesome parts of the Bible than others. In a book uh, called How Not to Read the Bible, um, uh, Scholar Dan Kimball notes a few principles that might help us make sense of the Bible. So there's four of them on your outline. I want to give you real quick, okay? Kimball's going to say, never read a Bible verse. Now, here's what he means. Never read a Bible verse. That sounds kind of counter, counterintuitive, doesn't it? The idea is always read the larger context. Okay, so in my own personal Bible reading, and if, if you're one of, if you're, accustomed to reading from a devotional book. You might get a verse or two here and there, but I'm going to encourage you at least some point in your Christian walk to begin to read it chapter by chapter and finish one book before you start another. You'll get a context just kind of naturally that way. Um, uh, Stuart Briscoe, um, Pastor Bill puts this in our notes for, for this lesson. He and, he and Karen are friends of the Briscoes. Um, Briscoe says, if you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. <laughs> That's pretty good. Paul, he's a friend of yours too, isn't he? If you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. That's brilliant. So don't just read a verse, okay? Second, know when and where the verse was written. So if uh, I was talking to a guy last week, who I had in a discipleship group years ago. And before I got to him to tell him where to read in his Bible, he started reading the book of Leviticus. <laughs> and I said to him, you got the, the coolest insights out of the book of Leviticus for a guy who had just started doing that kind of stuff. And I remember that from 20 years ago. But the truth is, is it not, that, the, that uh, Leviticus was written as part of the Old Testament law 
And it's, some of that is superseded by what happens in the New Testament. Um, was the passage I'm re reading written in Babylon during captivity or, or before that? Or was it written uh, during the uh, Roman Empire? So it helps us to know the time and place. Okay, third, the Bible is a library of books, not just a book. Okay, the Bible is a library book, not just one books. Um, so, and there are different genres that are written. So when, when I did a study here a while back through the book of Proverbs, I have to realize that that is wisdom literature. Those things are intended to be generally true, but never 100% true all the time. So I can't just say, well, Bob, God's word says this, um, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. You and I all know exceptions to that, but it's generally true. Okay, so uh, I've got to realize that, um, that despite that fact, um, and I need to understand the book that I'm reading within the book, uh, despite all that, isn't it amazing the unity that the Bible has, although it was written during a period of over 1,500 years by dozens of authors, and yet it has a common theme woven all the way through it. Somebody bigger than you and me had to be in charge of that. We believe it was the Holy Spirit, according to what we read just a little bit ago. So, okay, the number four, this is real critical. The Bible was written for us, but not necessarily to us. It's written for us, but not to us. And I probably ought to get to know who it was written to and what was being written about there. Um, uh, much of the Old Testament was written directly to Israel. Um, uh, certainly, um, uh, much of the New Testament was written to those under persecution by the Roman Empire in the first century. So, I'm going I'm to be really careful when I say this. When you look at 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people which are called by, name, by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. That's not talking about 2022 U.S. <clears throat> Ouch. Okay. Now, there's some promises from that I can claim uh, if it encourages you and me to pray. That's what it, we ought to do. We ought to turn from our wicked ways. But that's not a verse uh, written. Second um, Chronicles was written probably 1,000 B.C. or so. It wasn't written uh, for Washington, D.C., it was written for a different time, a different place, and I need to interpret it according. Okay? All right. Got it? There's some, just some ideas there as you read your Bible. Now, number two of our um, uh, key thoughts here. The Word of God is for our guidance and our enjoyment. Now, I, wanna, I want you to catch this. Do you enjoy reading your Bible? If you do... You're in really good company because David did, all right? So the longest chapter in the Bible, right squarely in the middle of your Bible, typically when you open it, is the 119th Psalm. I dare you to memorize the whole chapter, okay? <laughs> but it's absolutely beautiful. Now, you'll recognize verse 11 as Dan reads it, but start at verse 10, Dan, and read down through 16. Listen about David's affection for the Scriptures. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your command. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from 
your mouth, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with live longing for your laws at all times. Okay, let's stop right there. Let's think about this for a minute. Look at what, what Dan was reading there. Look at the words that are affection words in there. Delight. Um, um, the word rejoice is in there. There's another passage within this same chapter where uh, David says, your word is sweet, like honey to me, like honeycomb to me. Isn't that interesting that David seemed to indicate here uh, that his heart when he reads the word, it's not drudgery to him, but a delight to him. Now, consider this. I was made to think about this this week. David did not have all of this. In fact, he may have only had the first five books, the law. And yet, even that delighted him. Think about that for just a minute. I don't know exactly how much of the Bible David had, but he certainly didn't have all of the Old Testament even. And yet, that part that he had, that you and I have greatly superseded in our hands, he said, this delights me. It's kind of wonderful. Now, for those of us who have a hard time kind of getting into it, how can I change that attitude? Let's think about that a little bit. Michael? Oh, psalm 117 is the shortest psalm in the Bible. And 119 is the longest yes. chapter of the Bible. And there are 31,103 verses in the Bible. And the middle verse of 18 says, Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. And it inspires me to have that choreography. Yeah. It makes me want to study the Bible more. The cohesion of all this, Michael, that it is beautiful. I'm, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm right now in my reading, I'm in the book of Jeremiah, which is sometimes, okay, beautifully written, wonderful prose, but sometimes it's pretty negative. And yet in every chapter I have read so far, and I'm continuing to read through through it chapter by chapter each day, there is something that just says, oh man, this is for you. This is for you. So, okay. Now, key thought number three. The Word of God ought to be applied to ourselves before we apply it to others. <laughs> Think about that a little bit, okay? It ought to be applied to me before I try to apply it to somebody else. All right, now, we ought to read the Bible for ourselves before we start underlining all the things that I want to show to you about your life, okay? By the way, my favorite uh, uh, kind of weaponry scripture uh, that people often use with against people more or less when they're going through something difficult is Romans 8.28. 
For all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. That is meant for you to apply to you. You're not allowed, okay, can I tell you? You're not allowed to use that with somebody else. It just doesn't work. So when you're going through something tough, I'm not going to come along and say, well, you know, Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. That is just inappropriate use of Scripture. What it does for me is six months, six years, 16 years after I've gone through something horrible. Isn't it wonderful how I come back to that and say, yeah, oh, yeah. I hated that, but I see how you used it in my life. That's for me to apply to me, not to you. So um, have you ever heard a sermon and thought, I only wish she was here? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Jesus talked about that in the Gospels. Who's got uh, Matthew 5, uh, Matthew 7, verse 3, 4, and 5? Did I give that one out? Read it. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus, when he taught this, people were giggling. I'm trying to take a speck out of your eye, well, I've got a phone pole hanging out of my eye. <laughs> that ought to make us laugh. And yet, don't we do this? So, in the Old Testament, one of the great leaders in the Old Testament was blessed by God, and he got it where this is concerned. His name was Ezra. Now, I want you to listen to Ezra 7.10, to how he, his approach to his own reading of the scriptures. And by the way, he's a guy who taught the scriptures to other people. Uh, Sherman, read Ezra 710. 710? 710. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. So, this goes on your outline. You ready? How to read the Bible? Study it. Maybe in parentheses, put the word read. Just read it, okay? Read it. Second, it says that Ezra obeyed it. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that people who want to tell me what to think about the Bible, how to interpret it, sometimes there's a disconnect between, yeah, but are you doing it? That's where hypocrisy comes in, right? So Ezra says, I studied it, and then I obeyed it. Then I taught it. Then I taught it. That's the hard job, Paul, for the preacher, isn't it? Where where the disconnect often takes place. I need to study it, obey it, then teach it. And I can't get that order out of order. All right? The writer of the book of Hebrews uses an imagery here. He uses a surgical metaphor. Um, uh, Ellie, read Hebrews 4.12. (laughs) For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is a word there 
um, when I first was kind of trying to memorize this verse, Hebrews 4.12, I was reading the, um, the Old King James. And the, the Bible says in the Old King James, for the Word of God is quick, um, is quick and active. Uh, so the idea there, you ever, um, you ever been trying to pull a hangnail and it bleeds like crazy? What did you get into? The quick. That's that word. That's that word. Where you live is where the Bible goes to. It's where this bad boy goes to. And it's sharp, the Bible says of itself. In other words, it cuts away the bad and leaves all the good. That's what a surgeon does skillfully with a scalpel. That's what the word does in my life. Isn't it beautiful? Have you ever been changed by something you read in the Bible? My guess is the answer to that is true. Yes, I have. Now, number four, Jesus demonstrated how to handle and employ the word. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. And by the way, the reason we have the New Testament is because the disciples watched him use it and they started using it. So when he was tempted by the devil, screw tape, although screw tape's boss was after him, um, when he was tempted in the devil, each time the devil tried to twist scripture, Jesus knew it better than the devil did, and he used it in combating the devil. When he was, it's interesting, if you go to uh, Matthew 19 and Mark 10, where Jesus is asked about the tricky issue of divorce by legalistic people who wanted to trip him up, he took Old Testament principle and and explained it and used it and applied it in a way that they'd never even thought of because he knew it thoroughly. When he was asked about paying taxes in, uh, in Mark 12, you remember that one? By the way, April 15th is coming up. Uh, uh, when he was asked about paying taxes, you remember he said, um, whose image is on the coin? Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, God thing which is God's. And by the way, he gets into this idea, he hints at this idea of you and I being uh, created in the image of God there from Genesis 1. And uh, what, what a, an, an amazing thing. So the idea here is uh, he used the scriptures skillfully. And that's something that I've made a lifelong pursuit. I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. Now, let's wrap this up, okay? This piece of everyday armor is perhaps the most tangible. Why? Because it's something I can actually hold in my hand. Let me give you five things to put on your outline that are ways that you can relate to the Bible that will help you get a grip on it. This is not, uh, this is not specific to me. This is old navigator's teaching that's really, really good. Uh, in fact, you could, I Googled it this morning. You can Google the hand diagram and it'll show you a picture of this, okay? Okay, you ready? Hear it. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. And the last one, the thumb, is meditate. You might use the word apply. Now, here's, the, here's how this works. I can barely hang on to my Bible until I use my thumb and apply it. I think about it. Uh, a dear friend of mine in this church said, I noodle it. That's a great little verb. 
that Alan Brooks made up. I noodle it. I think about it. I think on it. I live with the thoughts from it. And I've got a grip on it when I do all of those things. Is it time to assess your habit of reading the Bible? How important that is in your life? Are you confident in handling it? Uh, do you have a carry permit for this guy right here? All right? You ought to. So take a carry course if you need to. Pray that God will give you a Psalm 119 love for this book. Okay? Now, we got one more week. Guess where, what we're going to be next week? In Ephesians 6. Okay? And we're going to talk about how prayer impacts all this. Thanks for hanging with me. I will see you next week. It's not too early for me to say this. You ready? He is risen. Every Sunday's Easter Sunday. I'll see you next week.